Well, these past two Sundays, we've been looking at what the Bible teaches us about the purpose and the importance of baptism. First, we started with the vertical significance of baptism, looking at what baptism communicates about our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. And then we considered the horizontal significance of baptism, what baptism communicates about our relationship with God's people, the church. But there are other uh, important, you might even call them practical questions related to baptism that need to be considered as well. Questions like, how should we baptize someone? By immersion, by pouring water over them, or by sprinkling water on them? Where should we baptize? Should we baptize in a church service, in a lake, in a home, in a hot tub? Who should do the baptizing? A pastor, a member, or maybe just the strongest guy that happens to come to church that day. We, we get him up here so that we can make sure that, that that person comes up and comes up quickly. How long should we wait before we baptize someone who professes faith in Christ? What about children who, who profess faith in Christ? When should they be baptized? And, and what about those who are baptized as infants? Should we rebaptize them as believers? In this third and final sermon on baptism, before we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper for a few weeks, my aim will be to answer these questions in the context of this local church. And I say that because some of these questions will differ in their answers depending on the context or the place of a church, especially in a missionary context where maybe a church hasn't been established yet and, and there is no local church to baptize someone. So that's going to be looking a lot like what we find in the book of Acts and as far as baptism. So I want that to be in mind as I make our way through, uh, as we make our way through these questions and answers that Depending on the church context or in certain places, it, it might look a little bit differently. Though many of these answers, I think, will look pretty similar in every situation. Our passage this morning is Acts 2, 36-41. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 910. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 2, 36-41, page 910 in the Pew Bible. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word to his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And uh, you may be seated, and I will pray. Father, you are a holy, righteous, glorious, and gracious God. That song and that chorus continues to, to play out in my mind. Though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. That never gets old for the believer. Our sins, they are many, even after we are by your grace justified and declared righteous before you. These sins keep on coming. They are many, and yet your mercy is more. And so this morning, Father, we corporately confess that we 
have sinned. We have sinned in what we have said. We have sinned in what we have thought. We have sinned in what we have done. Our hearts have not always been where they should be this past week. And, and again, we confess that your mercy is more and that Christ has paid the price for our sins. Father, we pray that you would increase our passion for your glory that having been changed by your grace, having been born again, having become new creations, that we would be burdened for the things that you are burdened for, the things that you care the most about, that you would increase our passion for your glory, our our desire for your word, our love for the truth, our desire to, to be sanctified so that we would better glorify you in the situations, in the stations, in the places, in the in the, the work settings that you have put us in. We want to be bright, shining lights that, that display your glory wherever you would put us and place us. And so we pray, Father, that in our time together as a church, you would use your word to help us understand things better, especially relating to baptism. Help us, Father, to be changed by, by your word and, and by the power of your spirit as the word is applied Father, I I pray for those who are celebrating, who are rejoicing, who are growing in Christ, that you would continue to cause them to, to grow, that this season of growth for them would be exciting and plentiful, that they would that they would not go backwards but forwards in trusting you and obeying your word, and and that you would bless their faith in you. Father, we pray for those who are who are suffering, who are struggling, those who are in the midst of family divisions and hardships, may you give them the grace and the clarity that they need to honor you with their words, their thoughts, and their actions. I pray for families to to delight in you more than anything else, whether it be sports or their house or their stuff or anything. May Jesus be the delight in families and in the the hearts of singles and the the widow, the widower, and and those who are new Christians. Father, we pray for those who are physically going through great hardships. We ask that you strengthen their faith and that you bring about healing. We pray for our nation and and for uh, the the voting that will be taking place soon. We pray, Father, that uh, you would bless Christians with wisdom and how not only to to vote, but how to navigate discussions that can sometimes lead to anger and frustration. Use these discussions in our lives with family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors to open up gospel conversations. Help us to be winsome and loving as we talk about uh, our nation and, and politics and voting. And Father, now I pray, as I so often do, that you would overcome my deficiencies as a preacher. You'd bless your people with the word and the gospel would be on display so that Christ would be exalted. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to start this morning and end this morning with what I think are the two most difficult questions that I've already posed. That of rebaptism and baptizing children who profess faith in Christ. Uh, the question of rebaptism is often difficult, not because someone who comes to this church or to a church like ours disagrees with the practice of believers' baptism, but because of the relational hardship that being rebaptized can bring for a Christian who was raised in a family that was Roman Catholic or Lutheran or one of the other Protestant Christian denominations that practice infant baptism. It's difficult because being baptized as a believer is often viewed by family members as not only a rejection of the practice of infant baptism, 
But depending on the family, it, it can also be perceived as a rejection of one's own family. It's, it's a denial of, of a parent's wisdom and discernment in some sense. That's how it's often received. And this has been the experience of many in our church. I've sat down with many of you at different times to talk about baptism and being baptized as a believer, having come from, from uh, a church or a, a tradition or a family that baptized you as an infant, and then coming to the conclusion that believer's baptism is biblical, you, you wrestle through these things. And no matter how much we acknowledge the way that God used our family and, our, and how he used even our religious upbringing to shape us for good, to, to teach us his word, or even to bring us to, to Christ— if we are rebaptized as a believer, it's likely that some of those in our family who remain in the religious tradition that we grew up in and have left will at least initially be sad, upset, or, or even possibly angry. To be baptized as a believer is to publicly and formally separate ourselves from, from whatever tradition or background we grew up with, whether it be Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian or some other uh, church that, that baptized you as an infant. And there's no getting around it. If we were baptized as infants, come to embrace believers' baptism as a teaching of Scripture, and then we are baptized as believers, there will likely be some difficult conversations that we have with people that we really love dearly and love us very much. And so before I answer the question of rebaptism, I want to take this opportunity to say once again from the pulpit that we do not believe or teach that believers' baptism is what makes someone a Christian. We believe and we teach that justification is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and therefore that regeneration, that is the new birth, being born again, happens not by a water baptism, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings a dead sinner to life, a sinner that is enslaved to sin, cannot free themselves, they cannot change their mind about their condition. God must do that for them. And so we believe, we embrace this reality that that salvation is not by water baptism, but by grace through faith in Christ. And therefore, we don't believe or teach that someone who believes the gospel but was baptized as an infant and has not been baptized as a believer is not a Christian necessarily. All right, if, they're, if they're professing faith in Christ and they haven't been baptized as a believer, well, they, they are likely a Christian. There are Christians today, just as there were in the past and will be in the future, who believe the gospel, who are truly saved, who are godly brothers and sisters in Christ, who have been by the power of the Holy Spirit born again, who were baptized as infants and will never, ever be baptized as believers. Also, we do not believe that pastors, theologians, scholars, and Bible teachers who believe and proclaim the gospel of justification by faith alone and hold to and even teach infant baptism are in any sense of the word heretics. This would include early church leaders like Athanasius and Augustine, Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, as well as theologians and pastors that many of us have read and been blessed by, like Jonathan Edwards and R.C. Sproul. All of these men were godly men who have since gone to be with the Lord. And God used these men in their lives to strengthen, to bless, and to protect the church through their teaching and their preaching of God's word. Christians who believe the gospel and practice infant baptism are truly our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, and we need to treat them as such. 
This means that as we hold to our theological convictions tightly and unashamedly, and we, we teach these things, and we practice believers' baptism, we remember that baptism is a family discussion to be done with love and grace, not with anger and pride. I don't know how your family dialogues and discusses, but as a family, Amy and I have made it a point that we work through things, we discuss things, so that the whole family is benefited and blessed and encouraged ultimately. And so it's a discussion that must take place. Families need to talk about important matters, and baptism is certainly in that category of an important matter. So getting to the first question, why do we rebaptize people who were baptized as infants? Here's why. As a church that believes that God's word commands us to baptize believers, we don't believe that sprinkling, pouring, or immersing, and, and some, some groups actually immerse a baby in water. I, as a father, I cannot imagine witnessing that. I cannot imagine letting myself be okay with that, but there are groups that actually immerse a, immerse a baby fully under water and bring them up. Well, we don't believe these are valid or biblical baptisms. We understand that people call them baptisms, but it's our understanding that infant baptism is not actually baptism. It's really something else. Uh, it, it might be like a baby dedication that happens to use water, but it's not what the Bible teaches about baptism. And so for this reason, when we baptize a believer who has been baptized as a baby, we don't believe that we are technically rebaptizing them, but that that person is being baptized according to scripture for the very first time. Now, rebaptism uh, best describes the situation where somebody maybe was baptized as a child or uh, maybe as, as a 20 or 30-year-old, and then later on they come to, to realize that they were truly, for sure, as they're, they're they're convinced of this fact. They were not a Christian when they were baptized. And at some points or in some churches, they'll, they'll re-baptize that person, even though that they have a believer's baptism. That is, they profess faith in Christ and then were baptized. They were baptized because at that time they were not a believer. So technically speaking, I believe that that's really more accurately descriptive of rebaptism. but it's the language that many of us use, so, so I've used it in this sermon. Now, recently, a family member that shall remain nameless gave each of our boys a bag of candy, a bag of candy, as if our boys actually need any more candy, as if I want to bring candy, more candy in our house, especially near Reformation Day when so many people are giving our children candy and lots of it. And this bag of candy, even though I didn't want it, it did, I had to admit, have some really good stuff. Like this was the, the higher level candy bag. And, and so uh, I, I watched as my, my children opened this candy bag and, and out came this, this, this mini burger kit. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They have a whole bunch of these types of things where it's, it, it, it's candy or gummies in the shape of something. I've seen animal ones. And, and so here this, this gummy burger kit uh, was pulled out of the bag and, and it included these gummy buns. Uh, gummy ketchup, which all ketchup is disgusting, so even gummy ketchup would fit into that category. Mustard gummy and a gummy meat patty. If one night, and I, and I can picture this happening in our home, if you have ever interacted with, with any of our boys, even Titus, who's one and a half, he's picked this up. They're spunky. They're, they're, they're boys. They're, they're young, uh, like clever, funny, silly boys, and we, we, we love them. But I can easily picture this event happening one night. Uh, I go outside and I grill up some burgers. And, and I bring them in and, I, and we call the kids to the table. We all sit down, we, 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 we pray together and we thank God for his provision. And then we place a burger on each of the, the children's plates. 
And I can picture this happening with any of my boys, apart from the one and a half because he's strapped into a, a seat, so he can't get away. But I can picture one of the other three, the older three, doing something like this. I'll be right back. Can I be excused? Sure, son, thinking he's going to go to the bathroom. Then him making his way over to the pantry where we keep the candy because that's the first place that it goes, and then the next place is outside into the garbage. And so it's a way for us to kind of move the candy out of the house, and it goes in the pantry. So right now, at least one of the kids' bags of, of candy is there. The other two have kind of wised up to that plan, so they've tried to, to move the candy out of the pantry and forget it on desks and, and counters. But, but one of the, the children making their way into the pantry and, and, and sneaking something out of their candy bag and then making their way back to the, to the table and, and me saying, okay, son, eat your burger. And I can picture one of these three oldest boys pulling out from their pocket the gummy burger and saying, dad, I'm going to eat this burger. I'm going to have this burger for dinner instead. Our children are like most of your children. They love candy. They would much prefer to eat candy than meat or vegetables. And so this scenario could definitely play out. And here's what my response would be. It might say burger on that package that you just opened, son. You might call it a burger, but that's not a burger. This is a burger. And I would right there just with barbecue sauce on it and all those, those vegetables sitting down there, I would take a big bite. Eat your burger, son. Likewise, it might be sweet, but infant baptism, according to what we believe scripture teaches, is not the real thing. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and it's to be given to someone after, after they repent and believe, but not before. This is the order taught throughout the New Testament, including in this morning's passage, Acts 2, 36-38. Please look at it again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then going down to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. First, Peter preaches the gospel. Then he calls those who believe the gospel to be baptized. And, and 3,000 people, though there is some discrepancy among scholars whether or not that 3,000 refers explicitly to those who were baptized, or maybe they were people that were baptized before this, and now they're officially being added uh, during this massive biblical revival. Uh, well, these 3,000 people who receive the word were baptized. And so it's hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and then be baptized. We also saw this same order in last week's passage as we made our way through Matthew 28, 17 through 20, the Great Commission, where the Lord Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples. It's part of the discipleship process. It's not a pre-discipleship process. It's not something to get ready, uh, get somebody ready to become a disciple later. It's you're a disciple, then you are baptized. And, and we saw how not only is this part of the discipleship process, but, but that it's in accordance with baptism being a mark or a sign of those who are actually in the new covenant. And it's a picture of the union that the person being baptized has with Christ. The new covenant church is composed of those who are members of the new covenant. The various churches and denominations that practice infant baptism. And, and just so you know, to be clear, and, and we want to be 
We want to accurately describe and capture those views that we disagree with theologically. And again, where, where we can affirm our unity in the gospel, we want to do that. But there are, there are different views when it comes to infant baptism. And it's my, my belief that the Presbyterians have the infant baptism view the best. That is, they, they believe that by baptizing infants, they're simply and solely recognizing that that child is part of the, the covenant community and that they're going to be raised in the church and they're going to be uh, taught the gospel by those parents. And so, so, so even that, though, is a misuse of the sign of the new covenant because it's not to, to mark the, the, the children of believers. It's to mark the believer. And so the, the various churches and denominations that practice infant baptism are knowingly or in the case of Lutherans who believe God gives the gift of faith to an infant in their baptism, they're unknowingly giving the sign of the new covenant to those who are not yet Christians as well as to some who will never be Christians. So, so many babies were baptized that grew up into adults that never trusted in Christ. And so they, they were given this sign that, or this mark that was supposed to mark them as part of the church, but they were never part of the church. Well, Acts 2 does not directly address the question of rebaptism. Uh, somebody might go to uh, the interactions that those who were baptized by John have with Paul and others later on, and, and um, they ask him if they, were, they know of the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized after that because they only had the baptism of John. But, but I do believe even in Acts 2, uh, this passage can help a Christian that was baptized as an infant but is now considering being baptized as a believer. The event recorded in Acts 2 happened in Jerusalem during Pentecost. Now many of us Christians refer to the, to the events that happened at Pentecost as Pentecost. So we think of the tongues and how, how these people who hadn't learned languages were all of a sudden speaking in languages uh, that they hadn't learned. And, and I'm convinced they were proclaiming the gospel with those languages. So this wasn't an opportunity for them to, hey, all of a sudden, who needs the Rosetta Stone? We'll just now speak in all these languages and angelic languages. There's a purpose to tongues, and it was so that the gospel would go forth to other people and to affirm the miraculous work that God was doing at Pentecost. And we see these mini Pentecost situations happening over and over with all the different people groups as you work through the book of Acts with, with the Samaritans and the God-fears and the Gentiles. And so it's this repeated act, not because this is the normative, but because it's affirming that God is at work here. Well, this event of Pentecost was, was originally and still is for the practicing Jew, a festival that comes after Passover by 50 days. So 50 days after Passover, there's this, this festival called Pentecost that Jews celebrate. It was a Jewish harvest festival that originally served as a, as a celebration of God's provision when Jewish families would come together to praise God and give offerings of thanks for God's blessings. And so if you think about it, it was similar to something like what we have in Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving holiday is when families come together and they, they give thanks, either if they're Christians, to God or to the unknowable one. So that's always an interesting thing when you're with your non-Christian family members or friends and they're like, yes, I'm giving thanks. To who? Like, no, just generally, just giving thanks to space. Like, so that, that, that can be awkward, but, he, but bringing it back to this, uh, they, they were here celebrating this, this, this festival of thanksgiving, of, of God's provision in the harvest. And, and it was there that Peter called the Jews that heard him that day who were celebrating Pentecost with who? Their families to believe in Jesus, to repent of their sins, and to trust in Christ. And it was during Pentecost, this Jewish Thanksgiving celebration, that 3,000, maybe less, but, but maybe 3,000, 
And I say less because, uh, again, this number might refer to those who were added but had been baptized earlier. Uh, but, but I'm going to go with 3,000. 3,000 Jews stepped out from the crowd and were publicly baptized, showing that they believed Jesus to be the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, their Lord and Savior. And they were added that day to the church. And so there's this separating from, from the old covenant and them linking themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit who opened their eyes to see this to the new covenant. Now, picture the scenario. Were, the, were some of their family members there who witnessed this likely confused, upset, sad, maybe even angry as they watched their husband or their wife, their son, their daughter, their grandpa, their grandma, maybe a grandchild step out from the crowd and be baptized while they remained with the rest of the crowd? I, I believe so. I, almost certainly so. I mean, think, think of, the, of how this happened. It wasn't like they were, they were Facebooking everybody and the, all the social media. Hey, Peter's going to get up. Peter, one of those guys that was with Jesus who was crucified and then supposedly was raised. He, he's going to come. He's going he's, he's to speak. So everybody come. This was word of, the, word of mouth. People had heard that there was this miraculous work of God, that people were speaking in tongues that weren't native to themselves and they didn't learn and they were proclaiming these truths. And so everybody was like, hey, you got to come and see this. And so a dad hearing this, a man hearing it, wow, I got to go. Hey, hey, honey, let's grab the kids. Let's go. And then all these people, massive crowds of people coming together to hear Peter preach. And certainly some of those people believed and some of those people didn't. And it didn't just break down within families. So, though we see that in scripture, sometimes it's a whole family. Well, families coming forward, believing, repenting, believing, and being baptized. But certainly some of these families were divided that day. And so people were angry, upset, and sad. See, friends, this is how it's always been. There is a cost to following Jesus. In our culture, in this country, at this time, often the cost comes to family. It's not that we're going to be persecuted. It's not that we're going to be thrown into jail. It's not that, that we're going to lose our possessions like the persecuted church. Uh, it's going to be that, that there's going to be a cost within our family. Sometimes obeying Jesus will actually cause conflict within our family. Jesus' words in Matthew 10 come to mind, and I've often shared this passage with those who are wrestling through uh, being baptized as a believer, having been baptized as an infant. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not that Jesus is all about dividing up families unnecessarily. That, that's, that's not what he's aiming at. But it's the reality that, that sometimes a, a husband will become a believer and a wife won't, or vice versa. Sometimes a child will, and as they grow and they follow Christ, that will cause conflict within the family. So there's, there's a reality here that, that following Jesus will at times mean conflict within our family. And we've seen this, this connection between this and baptism already. Remember, uh, in Scripture, bat, being baptized is a person's first demonstration of outward faith. They repent, they believe, they confess it, but here's an act that they do. They submit to the Lord Jesus his lordship over the lives, their, their, their life in baptism. All these wonderful and amazing, rich things that are going on in baptism. And so 
If you look at verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, this is, this is one way that the believer takes up his cross and follows Jesus. They're identifying with the one who went to the cross, who was baptized as an identification mark with sinners, and we are now being baptized in a way to identify with Jesus. It's a way that we identify with Jesus. So we don't baptize someone as a church who was baptized as an infant because we want to cause division in families. There have been times where I've gotten emails. I've had conversations with a family member who's really upset that their loved one is being baptized, in their mind, rebaptized. The reason we baptize those who repent and believe the gospel is because Jesus commands his disciples, the church, to baptize disciples. It's a command from our Lord. And he commands those who are disciples to be baptized. And we believe the scriptures teach that repentance and faith in Christ come before and not after a person's baptism. It's not that we like to start arguments in families. It's not, like that we, it's not that we like to cause divisions. It's that the gospel oftentimes will divide. And it will divide between those who trust in Christ and those who don't. Uh, the next question is, how should we baptize? That is, what should be the mode in baptism? Should we sprinkle water on the, the person we're baptizing, pour it on them or over them, or should we immerse someone fully in water? Now, the Greek word baptizo used in Acts 2.41 is, is where the English word baptize comes from. Uh, it's the word that is most often used almost exclusively to describe a baptism, and, and it's really a, a word that we've used in English because that's what's happening. It's, it's, it's a word that comes from Scripture and has roots in, in the Greek. And it means to dip or plunge in water, often resulting in submersion. And so there is a debate about this word and, and what's being communicated with it. Uh, but, but most of those who practice infant baptism and, and, and study Greek and are scholars have admitted that, it, that the practice in the, the New Testament is that, that baptism is by immersion. That, that that makes the most sense and seems to be the, the teaching of Scripture. And so they, they base sprinkling or pouring on other matters, not on the, the practice in Scripture. Another reason why we believe the practice of baptism by immersion, and, and that's our practice, is best is the symbolism that it captures. In Romans 6, 2 through 5, a passage that we looked at two Sundays ago, the Apostle Paul links baptism with the believer's death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And a baptism by immersion physically mimics the motions of a burial and a resurrection, giving us this powerful, powerful, visible picture of our union with Christ. And we saw six of them last week. What a lasting impression this can and should leave with the one who is being baptized. They were brought under the water and they were raised up out of the water, reminding them that they have died with Christ, they've been buried with Christ, and they have been raised with Christ. And it's a picture for all of us in the church as well of union with Christ. And so putting these two together then, we baptize by immersion because we believe it is the mode of baptism practiced in scripture and because of the symbolism within baptism by immersion. Uh, the, the next two questions have to do with location and administration. You might be saying, well, he's getting really nitty gritty. Do we really need to think about these things and know these? I think it's helpful. And since we're going through baptism, I, I want to be as thorough uh, as, as I can be so that people know what we're doing and why we do it. So when you, you, you witness a baptism here, if this is your church, if, if you become a member here, you, you know why we've come to certain conclusions and why we do what we do. So where should we baptize and who should do the baptizing? 
I think the answers to these questions can and will differ based on a church's context and size. Uh, so if there's only one pastor, uh, it's very likely that the pastor may not be able to do the baptizing if it's during the, the service. If they don't have a church building, it's very likely that a, a church will go to a body of water. There's, there's lots of variables, and a church needs, needs to decide what is best and, and determine why that is best. Now, in Scripture, baptisms take place in various types of locations, uh, very public locations, some a little bit more private. Uh, There's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, who it's just Philip and him, it seems like. Maybe there's some some people with them, uh, but not a very public setting. Uh, And in Acts 2, the baptisms were done somewhere outside in Jerusalem where large crowds could obviously gather. It was probably in one of or in multiple pools within Jerusalem, and some of these pools, you might think of pools and you think, you know, water fountains. And I, I don't mean bubblers, I mean water fountains. So the things that sprinkle water up and, and how these pools would, would collect. And that's a place where people would collect water to bathe or, or to, to um, use for other purposes. Uh, well, these, these pools in Jerusalem were, were oftentimes very large, even comparable, some of them, to a large pond or, or a small lake that, were, that was acres wide and, and 10 plus feet deep. We can also, in, in looking at Acts 2, safely assume that Peter probably didn't physically baptize all those who were baptized that day because that would have left him with a sore back. 3,000 people, if the number is 3,000, uh, and that he baptized, that were baptized that day, a sore back. Not only that, it would have taken him all day. I mean, it was just a minute or two, and hey, you're trusting in Christ, you know, then we baptize you in the name of Jesus, uh, or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see multiple uses of, of words in baptisms, and they're all getting at the same truth. Uh, but but it, it's very likely that, that Peter didn't, it's almost certain that Peter didn't baptize physically all those people that day. Though in the history of this local church, we have had baptisms in various locations. We've, we've brought the baptismal out by the crosses, the three crosses, and done, done baptisms after a service. There's been discussion about having baptisms in the pond. I have boys that love to play around the pond, so I'm very familiar with the content of that pond. I have, I have no desire for—I for, I don't want to step in that pond and baptize anybody uh, personally, uh, and, and I would caution you from going into that pond. There's stuff that's alive, so it must not be toxic, but, uh, but it's not the cleanest place to, to be baptized. Um, so in, in the life of this church, we've, we've baptized at different locations. Uh, we've considered baptizing, and there may have been baptisms at a pool, uh, and partly so that we could accommodate somebody with certain health issues, and that was an easier way to baptize them. Um, but it is our preference that when at all possible, uh, we can baptize a believer during a Sunday corporate worship gathering. It's a regular meeting on Sunday mornings. And our reasoning has to do with some of the purposes of baptism that we covered in previous sermons. One of them is that baptism is when a believer's faith is made public to the church, and then ultimately that filters out into the world. And so we want to have as many people in the church here witnessing that person being baptized so that it's more public and people see it, are encouraged by it. And anytime we've moved locations, even just going out, you know, however many feet it is to the crosses, we lose some people. Sometimes we lose a lot of people. I don't know if it's people are thinking, okay, I can kind of sneak away into the car and get home early for the Packer game. Or, um, you know, maybe, the, maybe even just a physical thing to walk that distance for some people who have health issues. That's a difficult thing. So we always lose people when we move locations. Uh, and the other, the other connection to the purpose of baptism is, is that baptism is how a church affirms someone's citizenship in God's kingdom. So it makes sense that we would want as many of our members there to, to be a part of a baptism. 
Uh, again, th there's nothing wrong with going to a river or using the pond at your own risk or whatever. You know, the, the location is not as significant as I think having the church there. Now, sometimes people will say, well, if we go to the beach, if we go to Bradford Beach or we go to some very popular place, then all these people will witness it and we'll be more public. Well, the reality is in our culture, people, most people I think will just keep on walking and we don't really have a good opportunity to share the gospel with these people. Even if it's a two or three minute, you know, hey, here's, how, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, and here's what we believe about the gospel. It's, it's not the ideal situation. And I've found that, that it was, it, what is especially helpful and a great evangelistic opportunity is those people who are getting baptized tend to invite family members and friends. And so not only are they watching them getting baptized, but then they're hearing a 40 to 45 minute sermon on God's word that is gonna include a, a gospel clarifying truth and call them to look to, Christ, look to Christ and trust in Christ. And so what, a better, what, what better opportunity do we have to, to use baptism than that? And, and, and I've joked with people after they're baptism that, that after they're baptized, I get to do the easy work of preaching to their family members and they have to do the heavy lifting of actually kind of picking up some of the pieces if mom or dad or grandpa or grandma is really upset. Uh, so it's a, it's a team effort in that and it, it is a very public opportunity for us. Uh, so that's our practice. We, we prefer to baptize somebody during a corporate worship gathering. Uh, who should do the baptizing? Again, another one of those, you know, scripture doesn't command us or, or, or say we have to do it this way or that way. But if baptism is an ordinance of the church to be administered by a local church that marks a believer with a sign of the new covenant and it affirms someone as a follower of Christ, then those baptizing a believer are to be representatives of the church acting on behalf of the church. As I, as I noted last week, uh, Christ gave the keys to the kingdom, the, the ability to bind and loose to the church ultimately. Yes, it was to Peter and then that was passed on to the local church through the disciples and, and now the, the church has that power. So it's not a bishop, a, a uh, pope or some priest or a certain very good preacher or the preacher. It's, the, it, it's given those, those keys and the ability to bind and loose, make judgments and declarations are given to the church. And so we want to, as best as we can, capture that in our baptisms. Uh, we are an elder or pastor-led congregation, though elder is often used to describe a lay or unpaid pastor in our culture, and pastor is often used to describe a, a staff or vocational elder. The terms are used interchangeably in scripture, and, and they're used for the same office. Overseer, bishop, these are all terms that are used interchangeably, and, and so we function that way. We're elder-led plurality. We're equal in, in authority, whether we're, we're on staff as an elder or we're we're a lay elder. Elders are appointed by our church to shepherd the church with God's word, to teach the, the church God's word, and to lead the church in accordance with God's word. And so for this reason, though scripture does not require baptism be administered by an elder or pastor, as those who are already appointed by the church to lead and represent the church, we believe that it's helpful and it's good for a pastor or an elder to, to oversee the administration of baptism. And I use the word oversee because if you were here last week, you noticed that I didn't actually do the physical baptizing, uh, partly because then I would have to wear short sleeves and I get wet and then I'm up here and, and everybody's staring and, and the people that come in late after the baptism are thinking, did he just wet his pants? What's wrong with that guy? Uh, so, so the way that we, we do it is, is whoever's preaching or whoever's leading in the overseeing of a baptism reads that person's testimony. They introduce baptism and they explain what it is so that people know what's going on, especially visitors, family members who aren't familiar with 
believer's baptism. And then I ask the person if they're trusting, have they repented of their sins and are they trusting in in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins? That's where we put it. That's why I'm looking over here. Uh, And and then there's two other people. Oftentimes they are uh, another elder, pastor, but not always. Like last week we had Mike Creech, who's a missionary and a member of this church, uh, assist with the actual physical baptizing of, um, of those in the second service, two of which were his children. Uh, so, so I like that because it does capture this plurality. Like it's, it's not me ultimately that's baptizing that person. It's the, the church that's baptizing that person. And I'm delegated with the responsibility to represent the church as I lead through that. Uh, and so we're not opposed to having a, a non-elder uh, or, or pastor physically baptize someone. Uh, we especially uh, might be recruiting those who work out a lot and who are strong and, and tend to take care of their, their arms and their back. Uh, but, but we think that that practice captures that, that truth, that, that baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's, it's not, not something that, that is done outside or shouldn't be done outside the church, but it's, it's for the church and, and it should be done in the church. Well, the next question moves into the more difficult ones. Uh, It has to do with timing. How quickly should we baptize someone after they repent and profess faith in Christ? Should new believers be baptized right away? So instead of, you know, the evangelist or the preacher in in a church saying, hey, raise your hand, close your eyes, everybody, raise your hand if you're a believer, it's, hey, your believer, jump into the baptismal and we're going to baptize you right now. Is, is that how it should be done? Uh, should there be instead a waiting period in which we test and teach the new believer before they are baptized? Well, in light of Acts 2.41 and many other examples, really all of the examples in the book of Acts uh, of baptism, in the New Testament, a case can be made that baptism should quickly, even immediately follow someone's repentance and professed faith in Christ. After all, baptism is how God has determined that our faith in Christ is to be made public. So, so I don't think we, we should have this long, drawn-out period before baptism in order to test someone's faith and to teach them every doctrine we possibly can before we baptize them. However, if baptism is how someone announces that they are Christian, if it's an important part of the discipleship process, and if baptism is how the church affirms that someone is a citizen in God's kingdom— then we should take at least a little bit of time to be sure that the person being baptized believes the gospel and and the church that is baptizing that person knows and can affirm that person as a Christian. In Acts 2 and throughout the first century, so how do I reconcile that with what we see in Acts 2 and and in, in the rest of Scripture? In Acts 2 and throughout the first century, it was pretty clear what those getting baptized were signing up for when they were being baptized. They were joining those whose leader had been opposed by the Jewish leaders and put to death under the Roman government. To be baptized was to publicly link oneself, not with the powerful, but with the persecuted, who believed in a crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. So somebody didn't get baptized because it was the cool thing to do. Somebody didn't get baptized because their best friend got baptized. Uh, Most of their best friends would reject them if they were baptized. Someone didn't get baptized because everybody else was doing it. They got baptized because they believed the gospel, and there would be a major cost to them being baptized. They would be marked publicly, and it wasn't a good mark for most. Today in our country and in many others, baptism doesn't come with the same type of cost. Again, it might cost you when it comes to your family, but you're not going to probably lose any money over it, maybe a business dealing or something. Uh, you're, you're, you're not going to uh, be thrown in jail or uh, experience some, some physical threat, at least not yet in our country, uh, though many do think that that eventually, sometime from now, is where things are going. It's not that case yet. It is a great, wonderful 
blessing that we live in a country where we have the freedom to worship God, to serve Christ, and to proclaim his gospel. However, these freedoms mean that in comparison to what we see in the early church and what we see today in places where the church is persecuted, there is often little to no cost to publicly declaring our faith in Christ through baptism. So today, many non-Christians, for various reasons, are being baptized. And you know what this does? It increases the number of nominal, that is, false Christians who proclaim to be Christians. And that's a problem. It's a big problem in our country right now. There's confusion over the gospel. You see, it's damaging when someone claims that they are Christian when clearly they are not, because we see it and everybody else starts to think that's what Christians are like. That's what they do when all the signs given to us in Scripture of what a Christian is like and what they do are not found in that person. So that person, just, and this is damaging in itself for people to walk around and say they're Christians when they're not because people think that that's what Christians are like. And it, it, it gives us a bad mark and, and it confuses the gospel. But it's even more damaging when a church baptizes somebody who's clearly not a Christian. Again, we have been duped and we will be duped. That's the reality. And we have a way to move forward through that in church discipline, which is simply a, a way for us to say, hey, we affirmed your your." Your baptism was, was a valid baptism. We walked you through that. You were a member of the church, and, and now we can't because you have rejected the gospel. You're not repenting and trusting in Christ. Uh, so, so it's very, very destructive when, when those who profess uh, to be believers are not believers are then baptized. Uh, we need to do some, some homework. We need to, to, to find out the truth as best as we can. So then how can we avoid the problem? We don't want to create this long period that, that, that serves as like a testing period to, to make sure without a doubt as much as we can that the person is truly a Christian. And we don't want to baptize too quickly because uh, that, that could mean that we're baptizing somebody who's not a Christian. Now, now, I think depending on the person, it could take anywhere from three meetings. And this, is, this has been our practice. We meet with the person. We talk with them. We have them write out their testimony, which is a great way to say, do you get the gospel? Sometimes people just forget the gospel in their testimony. I'm like, I, I understand that you have a crazy background, but tell me about Jesus. Like, your testimony is really God's story. Jesus needs to be the star in your testimony. So we, we ask questions and we follow up. Hey, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he the only way? And that gives us an opportunity to, to, to prepare them for baptism or to say, you need to wait. Uh, we meet and we talk about what baptism is. Now, all of this could take three meetings or three months of discipleship. But I do believe there, there is a first and most helpful thing that we can do in order to, to help guard against baptizing somebody too quickly and not delaying baptism. And it, it's something like our Sunday school answer at the church, preach the gospel. And when I say preach the gospel, I mean preach the gospel, the biblical clear gospel. We must unashamedly proclaim that we are all sinners and that the absolutely only way to be reconciled to a holy God is by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. Because if we preach that gospel, you know what's going to happen? We're going to end up talking about things like hell. We're going to end up talking about God's wrath and his holiness. We're going to end up talking about important matters that people need to understand before they say, yes, I'm a Christian. The reality is if we water down the gospel, we can get more people in the water. That's, that's the truth. And churches have done that. Uh, they, they, they want a number. Hey, we baptized 500 people. You know what? How many of those people are walking with Jesus and committed to the local church in a year or two or three years? That's the number that we should care about. 
And so we do some front work. We make sure that we're clear in the gospel. We don't water down the gospel. We talk about hell. It's the reality. Yeah, it's not the thing that we lead with. We're not walking around with the signs of saying, you're all going to hell unless you repent, believe, and are baptized. That's not what we lead with, but it comes up as we talk about Jesus because that's what we're being saved from, from eternity apart from God to, to, to know, not receive the wrath that we deserve, but because Christ took it, we will receive his blessings, his inheritance. We got to talk about judgment. We got to talk about holy, holiness. We got to talk and we got to be clear about the love of God for sure. God is love. And he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross so that all who repent, believe, and then at some point are baptized as a demonstration of that repentance of faith, would be rescued, redeemed, and not just forgiven of their sins, but be brought into the family of God. And so that's, that's really the best thing that we can do as a church and that you can do as a Christian, is, is not dumb down the gospel, not water it down, not say, oh, you know, this person's really sensitive. You know, yes, be winsome and loving and know some of their struggles and their background, but be clear, be unashamed, in your preaching of the gospel. Don't water it down so that more people step into the water. When you become a Christian, you trust in Christ and you give your life to him. And we need to win people with that reality and not some false watered down gospel light. Well, the final question has to do with children who repent and profess to believe the gospel. Should we baptize them or should we wait until they're of a certain age? Some Baptists have historically kind of settled on a, an age of accountability, whether that be 14 or 16 after certain development happens or at, at 18. They just kind of kick it down to the road and say, you know what? Uh, the, the government says that they're an adult when they're 18 and that's when they can be baptized. It can be a difficult question. And honestly, as I read articles and arguments about each position, it's hard. And I admit that it's very difficult to determine when and if and how, um, well, not how, I've already talked about how, but, but when a child should be baptized. Uh, it's a decision that needs to be made by the church in partnership with Christian parents. We've got to work through this together. All that is true in the previous question and the answer that I gave to it concerning when we should baptize a new Christian applies to, to baptizing children. But there are some additional things for us to consider. There, there tend to be two extremes that, that we must avoid when determining whether a child of any age should be baptized. The first extreme is to doubt a child's profession of faith simply because they are a child and then refuse to baptize them. So they can't do anything about their age. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you're, you're a young pastor. I'm 35. I got gray here. Okay, I've got four kids. I understand that I'm 35 and I'm a lot younger than some other. I can't do anything about that. And so I resonate as a younger pastor with the young children in our church. They can't change the fact that God put them in this world at this time, at this place, and they're the age that they are. And so we can't just throw away or dismiss their profession of faith because they're young children or teenagers or high schoolers or whatever it might be. I have been blessed with the ability to, to know, and, and there are some of them in this church, young children who have an amazing faith in Christ and who exhibit that faith every Sunday morning. They sing louder than some of the adults in the sanctuary. They rejoice when they hear the truth of the gospel. They look at me and when I talk about Jesus, they're smiling and I'm smiling back at them. But we cannot dismiss them just because they're young. In Acts 2.39, Peter says, 
The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's not an explicit command to baptize children, but we, but we need to remember that the gospel is for people of all ages, including children. And in considering baptizing children, of, of course we have to have Matthew 19, 13 through 15 in mind, the, the words that Jesus spoke about children. Then children were being brought to him, that is Christ, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, those who wait and delay baptism until a, a child is, is almost an adult or an adult, they get that, they affirm that. But, but I think there's something there that we really need to wrestle with. That it's, it's difficult, but this is a question that we need to talk about. And so that's why we're spending some significant time this morning together talking about it. Uh, the second extreme is to be so quick to affirm a child's profession of faith and baptize them that we don't take the time to see if they truly believe the gospel and have been born again or if something else is really motivating this baptism. Sometimes it's a parent that really just, they, they want assurance of their children's salvation, so they're always bringing up baptism and saying, hey, you should. Sometimes it's an older sibling. You know, that, this is one of the, the difficult things to determine, too. You know, when, when an older brother or sister gets baptized, it's kind of pressures on the younger siblings instantly. Like, when are you going to do it? I did it. When are you going to do it? Oh, then, then what if, in, in the order of the siblings, it's, a, it's the 10-year-old who gets baptized, but there's a 12 and a 14-year-old? And it's kind of like, what's wrong with you, 12-year-old or 14-year-old? So there's a lot of things that come up that we need to determine. What's really motivating this, child, this, this child's desire to be baptized? Is it a parent kind of just nudging that? Is it kind of the parent holding something over the child's head? We need to be careful. Parents, you've got to be really careful about these things. And so we need to have a balanced view to determine whether a child, a teenager, or a young adult is, by God's grace, a Christian. Because if we're confident that they are a Christian, then, then here's my conviction, church. We need to baptize them. We need to fan the flame of faith in that young believer's heart. Baptism is, is, is how they say before the church, I'm a Christian. I might be 10 and you might be 40 or 50 or 60, but I'm a Christian. And there's just as much saved as the, the older, mature believer who's been walking with the Lord for 70 years, that 10, 11, 12-year-old. So, so we need to baptize them if we're convinced they are Christians. This is the, how they, they say, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. And, and, and they're not just children to be belittled. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who happen to be younger than us. And we should view them and treat them as such. So what is the way forward? One of the ways that I've pastorally tried to navigate this, and I have, and this is an issue that comes up and will continue to come up, and I'll face it and already am facing it as a parent myself, uh, one of, one of the resources that I've sent to, to uh, parents who are working through this is an article that's written by Pastor Brian Croft, and, and he gives this helpful counsel in that article. In my experience as a parent and pastor, I've realized age isn't the most important gauge in determining true conversion. Instead, it's generally wise to look for these evidences in an age-appropriate manner. For example, a 16-year-old will articulate his understanding of the gospel differently and more fully than a 10-year-old. The same may be said of a child's desire to obey their parents or display a selfless spirit toward their siblings. As children age, these things will begin to look different, and our expectations should follow suit. Nevertheless, visible fruit must be present in some way, 
And I'd strongly discourage anyone from affirming a child's conversion without some kind of tangible evidence apart from a verbal profession. On the flip side, though, I'd caution parents and pastors from falling into the trap of demanding more from a child than can be reasonably expected and observed. And so drawing from from, uh, the five signs of of true conversion that theologian Jonathan Edwards used during the first Great Awakening in America, if you're not familiar with it, that that was a time before America was even a country, when we were still colonies, uh, when there was a real biblical true revival that, that went on in this country or in the colonies. And Jonathan Edwards was one of the the men that God used in that revival, his preaching. You're probably familiar with uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was his sermon. And and so as the the revival continued, there were false revivals that kind of splintered off the, the true revival. And so Jonathan Edwards, dealing with some of the blowback where some people were saying, hey, this isn't, this isn't real. This stuff, these people are saying that, and then the next night they're just getting drunk at the, at the saloon or whatever, the bar. Uh, and so Jonathan Edwards, to help navigate that personally and pastorally, came up with five biblical evidences uh, of, of a true conversion. And, and Croft, uh, the, the, the pastor who wrote the article, gives gives from that five evidences that we should be looking for in a child who professes faith in Christ. And so again, these could be uh, applied to parents, uh, adults, singles, uh, but he applies them to, to children specifically. And then he asks the question, uh, evidence one, growing affection and need for Jesus and the gospel. Does my child appear to truly love Jesus or is he or she just telling me they do because I said so? Uh, when you become a Christian, you begin to treasure Christ. And so you know this if you're a Christian, things began to change in your passions. You used to long for certain things and now you long for Christ. You long for his word. You want to read the Bible. You want to know more about God. Your heart's affections now belong to another. No longer is it the things of this world, it's the things of God. And, and guess what? The same is going to be true of a child. And so this doesn't mean that instantly they're going to put away all the X-Men and the Barbie dolls and all the toys and they're never going to watch cartoons and they're going to take the, the video games outside and they're going to smash them with a bat and, and, and commit an oath to, to God before you and, and you'll be like, wow, definitely, for sure, they are a Christian. But it will mean that naturally, out of them will bubble up amazing, wonderful truths about God because they love God and they have the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's in you is in your child if they're a Christian. And so they're going to say things like, I just, I'm, I just love Jesus, Mom, Dad. And they won't always be prompted. Sometimes you'll prompt them and they'll respond, but sometimes they'll just, they'll just start talking about Jesus. They'll, they'll say, can we sit down and read the Bible? They're, they're going to do things that, that Christians do because they're Christians. And so we should be looking for, for what, are, what are our children treasuring? doesn't mean that they don't enjoy sports. It doesn't mean that they, didn't, they don't enjoy reading sci-fi or playing video games. But it does mean that they have a new love, a greater love, and it's Jesus. And so look for that in your child. Uh, evidence two, heightened understanding of the truths of Scripture. Does my child independently seek to know God's word? Uh, we, we have the, the, the practice as a family of reading Scripture at night before bed. And then we, we often will, after I read a, a portion of scripture, then we'll read uh, another helpful book, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Wingfeather Saga, which is one of our favorites, written by Andrew Peterson, a Christian uh, singer-songwriter, uh, or the Pilgrim's Progress. So these, these wonderful, exciting books that have biblical parallels. Uh, and so we start with scripture, and it warms my heart when instead of going right to the, to the other books that we're going to read, they say, Dad, I have a question about that. Can you explain that to me? Or, or especially like it happened last night, we're reading through a parable and one of them gets the parable. 
hey, that's not just about a, a vineyard and, and somebody loaning out the vineyard to tenants. That's about God sending his son, Jesus, who was killed by those who were in power. Like, yes, son, you get it. Like that, that should be going on in families and doesn't always mean that they are necessarily believers, but we should be encouraged. It seems the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts and we should, again, fan that flame, encourage them. It could also mean like it does in our house sometimes that the kids know that I love to talk about the Bible with them. And at eight o'clock, if they continue to talk about the Bible with dad in bed, we're going to keep on talking and talking. They're going to stay up later and later. So it could be that. So I've got to weigh what's going on here. Are they really interested or they just want to stay up late? Evidence four, a greater awareness of and distaste for sin. Is my child demonstrating spiritual fruit contrary to his personality? And that's helpful because some of our children love to please us. And we like that about them. You know, we might have multiple children and, and we have one child that is a people pleaser. And as their parents, we really appreciate that about them. They, they want it to make us happy. And, and yet, that doesn't mean just because they're, they're repenting when they sin, or supposedly repenting of, the, of their sin, uh, that they're truly born again if that's their natural bent. They just, oh, mom's upset, dad's upset, I should say I'm sorry. And that's different from true repentance. And so we need to, to weigh you know, their personality, and, and yet we, we need to be looking for this. Do they admit things before we like hound them? Do we have to sit them down? And this is what we do in our family. We, we parent with the gospel, so we discipline, we talk about their sin, we explain it, but then we always finish with, you need to look to Christ. Christ died on the cross for your sin of, of punching your brother or stealing that cookie or whatever it might be, disobeying, disrespecting your mother. He paid for that sin at the cross. So we parent with the gospel. We lead them through it. Every discipline, uh, every discipline situation is an opportunity to share the gospel with our children, to encourage faith or call them to trust in Christ. But if we're always pursuing that child, they're never leading, they're never opening up and, and opening up their heart and saying, I am so sorry that I did that, mom, dad. It was wrong of me to disobey you that way, to disrespect you that way, and it grieves me. Sometimes there should be tears in response to their sin. And if we're seeing that, that's a really good sign. We don't have to make them feel bad. We don't have to, to use the law so heavily. The, the Spirit is connecting the dots for them that what they did was wrong. They'll, they'll come and confess without you even pursuing them. Hey, hey, mom, I, you didn't notice this yet, but I took the cookie and I ate it and I feel terrible about it. Mom, you said that I need to go clean the room and I, and I haven't done that. I'm sorry. Before mom even says anything, dad, I was disrespectful in my tone. Please forgive me. I love you so much. I'm so thankful. For you. That's the type of thing that, can, that should be coming out. Again, you say, that's, that's a miracle if, that, if my kid says that. Amen. That's what, what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. It's a miracle. They have a new heart. And finally, the, the last evidence that he gives in the, the article, noticeable desire to obey parents. Is there independent remorse for daily sins? Uh, do they want to obey? Like we, we've talked about this before. One of the ways that we love a God who needs nothing from us is by obeying his commands and law. We say, you're right. My feelings tell me that I should go pursue sin, God, but you say that's sin. That leads to destruction. So I'm not going with my feelings. I love you. I'm going to trust you. And so I will obey your commands, your law. The same is true for our children. Now, we're not God, but God has given us these children, and God has given these children us as, as a help in, in cultivating obedience. And if they're believers, they should want to obey their parents. Now, I don't believe there's a specific age, as you've seen, that we should or shouldn't baptize a child. The church, in partnership with the child's parents, can look for these and other biblical evidences that a child is a Christian and then determine if and when they are ready to be baptized. And I want to close with this, a word to, to parents. 
Make sure, parents, that it's your child who's leading the charge towards the baptism, towards their baptism, and not you. Yes, we want our children to be baptized. We want them to, to profess faith in Christ. But if you're always leading the charge in this discussion, well, then something needs to switch. Now, we've been talking about baptism for, if you count the introductory sermon, four Sundays now. If, if they've been around, if they've been hearing you talk about the sermons, then, then baptism's on the mind. And you should let them bring it up. You, you, you can ask, hey, what do you think about baptism? And I'd say, what do you think about you tomorrow being baptized? Uh, but, but ask them uh, open-ended questions. Uh, remember, baptism won't save your child. And so if the Lord were to take them home before they're baptized, if they are in Christ, if they're trusting in Christ, you can be confident in his grace. You trust in the mercy and the grace of God. Uh, not in them being baptized in water. And so we want to be cautious and discerning as a church when it comes to all baptism, especially children's baptisms. Not always, this is not always the case, but often the younger a person is baptized as a believer, the more likely it is that later on as they grow in Christ, they're, they're going to question whether or not they were really a believer when they were baptized. And so in that sense, it can at times diminish the significance of their baptism. Now we work through that with people and we say, if you, were, if you profess faith in Christ and the church said, yeah, we think you're a Christian, even if you're 8 or 10 or 12, well then, then that's a valid baptism. But that's a thing to, to consider as well. That said, one of the concerning aspects of Christianity in America today is how little Christian churches and Christian parents expect of their children when it comes to spiritual truths and them walking with the Lord. We often have such a low standard for them spiritually. Children can understand the gospel. Jesus said so. They can serve God and his people, and they can grow in holiness. And and we adult Christians are to make it a priority to help them in these things. We are to encourage them, to, to disciple them, to pour into them, and and not lower the standards. I think of, you know, some of the responsibilities that are given to kids these days. We give them a cell phone, and we think that they're able, at a young age, to discern what they should click on and what they should not click on, who they should call and when they should call them, where, what they should do on the internet. I mean, think about that. Uh, we, we give them all these responsibilities. In high school, even in freshman, even in eighth grade, sometimes they're, they're put in AP bio, AP uh, English, all these extra intense classes, and yet we think, oh, you know, they're, they're not mature enough to handle the most important truths that they could ever he- hear or think about. And so we need to raise our level of expectations with children, not meaning that they're going to be perfect or they're going to be always mature in Christ, but, but we want to call them to that. And one of the ways that we do this is by baptizing those children who are confidently are, generally, are, are genuine Christians. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, you would bless uh, your word going forth, that you would give wisdom to this church, to us, uh, especially to parents as they navigate these things, and, and to, to those who struggle with, with rebaptism. I pray, Father, that our discussions would be full of grace, aiming for, for the good of, of others and, and not to win an argument. Father, we pray that you would use baptism more and more in the life of this church to strengthen and provide assurance to believers and, and that we would, be, we would be faithful in doing what your word calls us to do, and that is to baptize believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.